Self-identity is a precarious thing. Some people struggle with it daily, while others know exactly who they are. Emma Goldman was the latter. She always knew who she was, a radical activist who fought for those who couldn't fight for themselves. She woke up every day with a purpose. But when she had her platform pulled out from under her, she lost that sense of self. Soon, her uncompromising views threatened to make her an outcast, even among her own supporters. And suddenly, her strong sense of identity was something of a liability. She wasn't just an agitator. She was too revolutionary for the world around her. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met Emma Goldman, a Russian immigrant turned American radical. For two decades, she antagonized authorities and fought tooth and nail to change the system. She disseminated illegal information, incited riots, and plotted assassination attempts, all in the name of anarchism. This week, we'll look at how things escalated for Emma as she joined the anti-war movement in the U.S. and the devastating consequences of her actions. We'll follow her through her later years as she moved restlessly around the world searching for utopia. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.
In 1916, 47-year-old Emma Goldman was arrested, along with her lover, Ben Reitman. Their crime was disseminating information about birth control, but their arrest turned out to be one of the best things that could have happened for the reproductive rights movement. Now, everyone who picked up a newspaper learned about Emma's fight for women's contraception and why she thought it was essential for a more free society. Her trial inspired other progressives to take up the cause, and although Emma was found guilty and sent to prison, it was a short stint. She only served two weeks. Upon her release, she was right back on the streets advocating for female birth control. Reitman, on the other hand, wasn't so lucky. He was jailed for six months. In that time, the couple's passion for one another faded. Not long after he was finally released, the two decided to end the relationship. But Emma wasn't distracted by the loss of her lover, and it wasn't long before her focus shifted from women's reproductive rights to something else entirely. In 1916, the American people were consumed by an impending event that loomed over the country, the United States' entry into World War I. For the previous two years, the war had been waged on the other side of the Atlantic, allowing the U.S. to remain neutral. But after several American ships were targeted by German U-boats, public opinion shifted. Now people wanted to fight, and President Woodrow Wilson, who'd initially opposed the war, felt pressured to respond. It seemed likelier with every passing day that the U.S. would join the fight, and to make matters worse, there was talk of a draft. To Emma, this was infuriating. As an anarchist, she believed the government had no right to even exist in the first place, let alone a right to wage war. She saw warfare as yet another force for capitalism, which used and abused expendable citizens, whether they were factory workers or soldiers on the battlefield. To the anarchists, asking soldiers to fight in a war was bad enough, but forcing people into the army was outright coercion. Emma couldn't stand the thought of young men being sent overseas against their will. It was like asking workers to lay down their lives for the factory owners who abused them. Even though it didn't affect her personally, Emma became a staunch advocate of the anti-conscription movement, and it would change her life forever. Before we continue with Emma's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. While most activists usually have some sort of personal stake in the causes they adopt, there are some like Emma who fight on behalf of an oppressed group, even if they don't belong to it. These are people that sociologists John D. McCarthy and Mayer and Zald call conscience constituents. When these activists surround themselves with other like-minded individuals and become part of a collective effort, their identity is strengthened. Because they have others around them who expect them to fight, they come to expect that of themselves, too. This is exactly what happened with Emma. Between her own actions and those around her, she internalized her role as an activist to the point that it was her entire identity. So even though she was not at risk of being drafted herself, she felt an intense obligation to fight on behalf of others. 
Throughout 1916, as World War I raged overseas, Emma took to her podium to argue against American involvement. She also wrote essays in her magazine, Mother Earth, lambasting the idea of the draft. But nothing Emma did could stop the inevitable. On April 2nd, 1917, the United States joined the war. And a month later, on May 18th, the government enacted a draft. The day after it went into effect, Emma and her colleague Alexander Berkman called a meeting of the No Conscription League. Over 8,000 people came to hear Emma and Berkman speak at this first meeting of conscientious objectors. The pair denounced the war in the harshest of terms, and the crowd soaked it all up. It was just the first of several meetings they held over the next few weeks. Each gathering seemed to bring in larger numbers than the one before. The meetings were so popular that once they reached capacity, thousands more stood outside in the streets, rallying together in support. Meanwhile, in the Mother Earth offices, everyone was on edge. It was one thing to rail against the war in a speech, but another thing entirely to print the same sentiment on a page. Month after month, they were churning out over 8,000 copies of the magazine for their subscribers, and each one could be used as evidence against them. While speaking out about the draft was not yet a crime, several other anti-war periodicals had been banned. If they continued printing anti-war sentiments, the Mother Earth employees knew things wouldn't end well for them. Some fled, either to hide in another country or simply to lay low, out of the government's line of sight. Many other activists were backing down out of fear, but not Emma and Berkman. They couldn't believe that their fellow anarchists were giving up so easily. In the words of Emma's ex-lover, Ben Reitman, she and Berkman became more revolutionary than they had been before. Emma especially wasn't willing to stand back and not say her piece. War and the draft went against all of her beliefs, everything she'd ever fought for. She couldn't stay silent. So in the June 1917 issue of Mother Earth, she printed the No Conscription League's entire manifesto word for word. And just in case no one read it, she made sure the cover of the magazine got her point across loud and clear. It was a drawing of a coffin draped in black, accompanied by the words, In Memoriam, American Democracy. Emma knew that this would get her and Berkman in trouble, but they didn't expect it to happen as quickly as it did. On June 15, 1917, the U.S. government passed the Espionage Act, which made it a felony to object to conscription. Anyone who dared to speak out against the war was deemed unpatriotic and could be sent straight to jail. That very same day, a U.S. marshal showed up at the Mother Earth offices with a dozen policemen. 47-year-old Emma and 46-year-old Berkman were arrested on the spot. The next day, authorities charged them with conspiring to obstruct the draft, and their bail was set at $25,000 each, about $550,000 today. Despite the vast sum, their supporters quickly raised the money, and the two were released while they awaited trial. The second they were free, 
Emma called another meeting of the No Conscription League, but she wasn't able to forget her arrest for long. The trial began just two weeks later, on July 2, 1917. Just as with her earlier arrest, Emma figured this was all good publicity. The trial would at least give her a forum to broadcast her views about the war, and she knew that every newspaper would print her words verbatim. So in the courtroom, she made her thoughts known. Representing herself, she argued that people had a basic right to conscientious objection. Not only that, the First Amendment guaranteed citizens a right to free speech and protest. She even compared herself to other historical heroes who'd broken the law in service of what they felt to be right. People like Jesus, Galileo, and the Founding Fathers. But this time, Emma's talent with words wasn't enough. The jury found her and Berkman guilty, and they were sentenced to two years behind bars. Nonetheless, they went off happily, or at least content. They would rather be in jail for speaking out than free and silenced. On February 6, 1918, 48-year-old Emma was shipped off to the Missouri State Penitentiary to serve her time. But Emma was in for a shock. Unlike her last prison stint, this was considerably longer, and the conditions at Missouri State Prison were horrendous. The female inmates were often deprived of food, forced into illegal labor, and sent to solitary confinement for the smallest of infractions. Still, Emma's spirit wouldn't be broken. She was a model prisoner, going to great lengths to meet her work quotas and behave impeccably. The other prisoners noticed and respected her. So much so that the warden offered Emma a supervising position amongst the prisoners. It would have given her many privileges, but she refused to be anyone's boss. Even in prison, Emma remained true to her beliefs. It seemed nothing could break her. While she served her time, however, a new law was passed, the Immigration Act of 1918. This gave the federal government wartime powers to deport immigrants who were anarchists. And leading the charge was one man, J. Edgar Hoover. Before becoming the head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Hoover was in charge of the Justice Department's General Intelligence Division. He'd made a name for himself by targeting and deporting foreign-born radicals. It was his mission to see the country rid of them. So when Emma was released on September 27, 1919, she went straight to the top of Hoover's most wanted list. Not even two months later, he brought deportation charges against both her and Alexander Berkman. Hoover was so invested in seeing her deported that he presented the case against her himself. Emma argued that she was an American citizen and couldn't be deported, but Hoover persuaded the judge to deny her claims. He called her one of the most dangerous anarchists in the country. And because of Hoover's reputation, the court was inclined to agree with him. They decided to deport Emma and Berkman, too. Emma was shocked, and perhaps even more surprising was the pain she felt at leaving America. The United States was her home, and for all its faults, she wanted to remain there to fight for a better future. Emma had grown to love America, 
it just didn't love her back. In the early morning of December 21st, 1919, Emma was brought to New York Harbor. Waiting there was a ship that barely looked like it could sail through a calm bay, let alone across the Atlantic. Guards pushed her on board, along with Berkman and over 200 other foreign-born radicals being sent back to Soviet Russia. Emma stood on the deck as the ship set sail. It was an oddly familiar scene. The Statue of Liberty in the distance, engulfed by mist. 34 years earlier, the exact same image had been her first glimpse of America. Now it looked set to be her last. From shore, Hoover watched the boat pull out of the harbor. But even though he'd succeeded in getting rid of Emma Goldman, he hadn't heard the last of her. Wherever she was in the world, he knew she wasn't going to stay quiet. Up next, Emma confronts the Russian Revolution. Listeners, have you heard the eerie new podcast, Superstitions? Every Wednesday, explore the varying beliefs people around the world fear and follow in this mystifying series from Parcast. You do not want to miss it. Each week, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. Why do black cats represent witchcraft? What's the point of carrying a rabbit's foot around with you? And how come certain films seem cursed and others don't? Each new episode of Superstitions presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem cryptic or illogical or completely insane, but then again, do they? Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, back to the story. In 1917, 47-year-old Emma Goldman was charged with conspiring to obstruct the draft. She served two years in prison and, upon her release, was promptly rearrested under a different law and deported. In January 1920, 28 days after setting sail from America, Emma and her fellow deportees arrived in Finland. From there, they were forced onto a train and sent to Soviet Russia. As the train barreled toward Emma's homeland, she felt a sense of hopefulness. Maybe everything had happened for a reason. Maybe she was meant to return to the land of her birth, just as it was in the midst of revolution. Over two years earlier, in 1917, the Bolshevik political party, led by Vladimir Lenin, had overthrown the imperial Russian government. All over the world, progressives praised the Bolsheviks for ending a power structure that had plagued the country. 
Emma herself had cheered on the Russian radicals and thought that the Bolshevik uprising would bring about much-needed change. But as time went on, animosity grew between the Bolsheviks and the Russian anarchists. The anarchists believed the Bolsheviks had reneged on their promise to give power to the workers. Instead, they'd replaced the unfair and abusive imperial regime with one led by their own party. The Bolsheviks didn't mind being criticized, so instead of finding common ground with the anarchists, they considered them enemies. Despite this, Emma and Berkman hoped they'd be welcomed by the Bolsheviks as fellow revolutionaries. They didn't think for one moment that they would be labeled enemies in their own homeland. When Emma stepped off the train at the Russian border, she felt welcomed, at first. She and Berkman were greeted by a Communist Party committee and given a government stipend as, quote, friends of the revolution. But soon, Emma realized that the anarchists were justified in their outrage. Power in Russia had simply shifted from one group to another. The Bolshevik Revolution hadn't ushered in an anarchist utopia. Instead, party representatives hovered over every aspect of life. And all decisions, even local matters, were handled by party leadership. As if that weren't bad enough, Emma witnessed blatant corruption. While the Russian people fought for food rations, the leadership of the Communist Party never went hungry. They lived luxurious, comfortable lives, while regular workers and citizens had to scramble for the barest necessities. Emma and Berkman were determined to fix this, and the one way they thought they could do so was through direct contact with Lenin. They believed that if they could get an audience with the Bolshevik leader, they could make him see reason. Luckily, Lenin approved their request to speak with him, so Emma and Berkman showed up at his headquarters and pressed him about the anarchist agenda. But Lenin had no patience for lectures. He told them to stop worrying about his practices and to find useful work to do instead. It was a flat-out rejection. Emma and Berkman couldn't believe it. They had once praised Lenin, but now all they saw was a traitor to their cause. After their disappointing meeting, the two wandered aimlessly through the country, trying to find their path in a nation they barely recognized. Emma especially felt lost. The last three decades of her life had been defined by her role in the anarchist movement, and without that cause, she didn't know who she was. She needed to be a part of something. But in Soviet Russia, there was no place for her. Eventually, in December 1921, after two years had passed, Emma knew she had to leave. Berkman, her ever-loyal companion, went with her. But it wasn't as easy as just leaving to find a new country to call home. True to his word, J. Edgar Hoover had kept an eye on Emma's movements. When he discovered she left Soviet Russia, he alerted every intelligence agency in Europe. He decreed that under no circumstances was any country to grant Emma or Berkman asylum. The last thing he wanted was anyone helping Emma sneak back into the U.S. His efforts paid off. Emma and Berkman were persona non grata everywhere they went. They tried to settle first in Latvia, but were only allowed to stay there a few weeks. Then they tried Stockholm, but the same thing happened. Then Berlin. 
it seemed there was nowhere they could make a permanent home. Still, even as she wandered, Emma needed a cause, no matter how small. So while in Berlin, she began writing a book. It was titled, My Two Years in Russia. In it, she analyzed the Russian Revolution and its failings, and argued that the Bolsheviks had actually sent Russia backwards, quelling any sort of true revolution. When the book came out in 1923, her American publisher edited the text to omit or redact certain sections, including her analysis of the revolution. It was also given a new title, My Disillusionment in Russia. Emma thought that her comrades back in America would cheer on her work, but that wasn't the case at all. Left-wing progressives were all for the Russian Revolution, and they didn't understand how or why Emma would speak against it. It was a true setback. For the first time, Emma's words didn't inspire a movement. Unlike some of her fellow anarchists, Emma was utterly uncompromising. She had always been so steadfast in her beliefs that she saw no room for compromise, ever. Now, that was no longer an asset. It alienated her, even from the people who had once been her most fervent supporters. She longed to have her friend Berkman by her side to bolster her spirits. Though their romantic relationship had ended decades earlier, he was still the closest thing to a soulmate she had. But by that time, he was living with another woman and didn't have time to support her as he once did. It was another blistering loss. Emma was alone in a world where no one seemed to want her anymore. Not her fellow activists, not her old lover, and not either of the countries she'd once called home. Unsure what to do, Emma made her way to England, where she fell into a deep depression. Cast out from her radical groups, she had little money and felt horribly isolated. She was used to being celebrated, and now no one cared where she was or what she had to say. According to psychologist Kipling Williams, ostracism is painful because it threatens fundamental human needs, such as belonging and self-esteem. For Emma, so much of her life had been defined by being part of a radical group. When those people shunned her, it struck at her core. She struggled to know who she was or what she was supposed to do next. If a person is ostracized for a long period of time, that can lead to depression, helplessness, and feelings of unworthiness. For a while, Emma suffered from all of these. Then she made a decision. She wanted to belong somewhere again. She was done being an outcast from every country she lived in. She wanted to be a citizen. And if it meant doing something she'd sworn off for most of her life, then it was worth it. In 1925, 56-year-old Emma found a fellow anarchist who was willing to marry her. He was a 65-year-old Welsh miner named James Colton. There were no strings attached, and Colton had no false delusions about the marriage. They simply went through the ceremony, and Emma came out on the other side as a British citizen. Now she had a British passport and the freedom to leave Great Britain as she pleased, and, more importantly, be welcomed back upon her return. 
After the wedding, Emma went straight to France, where Berkman had recently settled. Another of Emma's friends lived there, the American heiress Peggy Guggenheim. She encouraged Emma to write her memoir, and even bought a small cottage in Saint-Tropez where Emma could write in peace. Emma got to work, and in 1931, at the age of 62, she finished her two-part, 1,000-page memoir, Living My Life. Compared to her previous book, this one received much better reviews. It was even one of the top nonfiction books of the year. But with that project complete, Emma was once again listless. She wanted to be back out on a speaking tour, and she wanted to go back to America. For years, Emma and her attorneys appealed to Washington for permission to return, but each time her petitions were rejected. But in 1933, Franklin Roosevelt became president, and his administration seemed much more receptive to the idea. By then, anarchists no longer threatened the structure of society. Their beliefs were considered fodder for debate more than anything else. So in 1934, Roosevelt signed off on a visa for 65-year-old Emma. She could return to the U.S. for a 90-day lecture tour, but she could only speak about two things, literature and drama. Emma reluctantly agreed, but as always, she planned to bend the rules. Emma adopted a fast and loose relationship with the approved topics. She didn't outright lecture on her anarchist beliefs, but she did speak about the drama of world events, as the UC Berkeley Library put it, including fascism, Stalinism, and Hitlerism. The newspapers religiously covered Emma's return, some with a wave of nostalgic affection. She even won back some of the progressives who had previously shunned her for criticizing the Russian Revolution. All in all, the tour was a success. But at least one person wasn't happy about Emma being back on U.S. soil, J. Edgar Hoover. He was adamant that Emma not remain in the States for a day longer than she was allowed. To ensure she couldn't slip away, he had FBI agents trail her for her entire trip. Meanwhile, Emma was ecstatic just to be back in America. It was all she had wanted for so long, and she tried to appreciate every moment. But in a flash, her 90 days were up, and she was forced to leave once more. She was distraught. When Emma left this second time, she hoped she'd be allowed to return permanently one day. She had no idea that she would never set foot on American soil again. Up next, Emma joins one final revolution. Anytime fitness is for real people with real fitness goals. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us aren't training for marathons or half marathons or even half half marathons. Only time most of us are running at all is if we're trying to make a connecting flight. Wouldn't have been late if we didn't stop to buy a headphone dongle. Point is, you got to be ready. You do not want to deal with rebooking. Anytime fitness, where real people help you make real progress. Join today and get a plan for training, nutrition and recovery. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. 
Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now back to the story. In 1934, 65-year-old Emma Goldman was granted a visa for a speaking tour across the United States. It was the highlight of her time in exile and only made her miss the United States even more. But at the end of 90 days, her time was up and she had to leave. After her lecture tour, Emma returned to her cottage in Saint-Tropez and once again felt completely aimless. Over the next year or so, she continued speaking in cities across Europe, but she wasn't as well-received as she had been in America. She simply couldn't make it work, neither financially nor politically. And then Emma's world came crashing down once more. On June 27, 1936, Emma's 67th birthday, Alexander Berkman died by suicide after battling health problems. For decades, he had been Emma's closest friend, a soulmate of sorts. Emma was devastated. If she felt lost before, this was on another level entirely. Now she felt untethered, and it worried the people closest to her. They started to brainstorm ways to help. Her friends knew that the only thing that could possibly distract Emma from such a tragic loss was a new political cause into which she could sink her teeth. Luckily, there was one fairly close by, the Spanish Civil War. The war began with a coup in 1936. A group of military generals with fascist leanings mounted a revolt against the leftist Republican government. The Republicans were allied with anarchists and communists, which made Emma's friends think she could be of some use to their effort. They went to Augustin Sushi, a German anarchist leader involved with the war, and told him she was available to help. Sushi knew of Emma and her accolades and was very interested. He felt sure that any revolution could benefit from her involvement, but that Emma was particularly well-suited for this one. So Sushi asked for her help. When Emma received his request, the call lit a fire in her. She had a purpose again. According to psychologist Stacy Schaefer, having a purpose in life establishes an underlying resilience that can help individuals recover from traumatic events. For Emma, being involved in another revolution revived her spirit and helped her climb out of her depression. She would never forget Berkman, but she could channel her emotions into something more productive. So she told Sushi, yes, of course she would help. In September of 1936, Emma landed in Barcelona, eager to help the cause. And what she saw there was overwhelming. 
For the first time in her life, Emma got to see the anarchist vision in action. Regions of Catalonia, Aragon, and Andalusia were all under anarchist control. According to Emma's biographer, Vivian Gornick, the economies were almost entirely under workers' control. Farms, factories, shops, public works, hotels, and restaurants all had been collectivized and were being managed by the workers without bosses of any kind. And in some places, money had been abolished in favor of collective coupons. Emma felt pure joy. Now, when she lectured, it wasn't to incite rebellion, but to encourage people to continue what they were already doing. It was the vision she had always held for the world, and finally, she could see it in action. But those three regions were the exception. The rest of Spain was in chaos, and the conflict was reaching a boiling point. Violence and bloodshed wasn't just happening at the front lines either. Civilian populations were being bombed too. At first, Emma threw herself into supporting the anarchists involved in the Republican effort. But by the middle of 1937, the anarchists were being pushed aside in favor of strict communism. Emma objected at every step of the way, but very few people backed her up. Despite differences between the two political theories, the anarchists and communists were essentially on the same side in the war. Most anarchists felt they should allow the communists to take control. A win for them was as good as a win for anarchism in their eyes. Emma was one of the few who dared to go against the grain. And for that, she was ostracized by her fellow radicals. Soon, Emma found herself once again on the outskirts of the movement. Emma wrote that Spain paralyzed her will and killed her hopes. It was the final revolution she would bear witness to, and she worried she would never recover from the disappointment. Still, she soldiered on. In 1939, Emma moved to Canada, where she hoped to raise money and awareness for unhoused women and children still in Spain. But being in Canada only made her feel more frustrated. She was so close to the United States and yet not allowed to return. Emma tried not to focus on that. Instead, she dove into her work. But she struggled to raise enough money to make a difference for the lingering efforts in Spain. Her comrades were now more concerned with the new looming threat, Hitler and Germany. The refugees of the Spanish Civil War were all but forgotten. Even Emma had other things on her mind before long. That same year, she met Attilio Bortolotti, an Italian anarchist living in Canada. He'd been arrested for distributing subversive literature and was facing deportation back to Mussolini's Italy. Moved by his plight, Emma made it her mission to see Bordelotti set free so he could remain in Canada. She formed a committee that raised money for his legal fees and also pressured the government to release him. Together, the group filed an appeal to overturn the deportation decision. While they waited for an answer, Emma held committee meetings and bonded with her fellow members. After years of a largely solitary existence, she finally had a small group of friends again. But then, on February 17, 1940, while playing cards with friends in her apartment, 
Emma had a stroke. For the next three months, Emma struggled to move from her bed. The stroke had paralyzed one side of her body and left her speechless. Emma Goldman, the woman who no one had ever been able to silence, could no longer speak. But during those three months, Emma got to see Attilio Bortolotti's deportation sentence reversed. He was a free man. At the very end of her life, she felt that she had done something worthwhile. Then, on May 14, 1940, surrounded by her friends, 70-year-old Emma passed away. For most of her life, Emma had expressed a desire to be buried near the Haymarket anarchists who had inspired her back when she was a young woman. Surprisingly, the U.S. agreed to the request. It seemed that America had no problem welcoming Emma back after she died, now that she could no longer give her dissenting opinions. Her body was brought to Chicago's Waldheim Cemetery and her coffin draped with flowers and the Spanish anarchist's flag. Thousands of people, including some of the most prominent reformers and radicals, came to her funeral to pay their final respects. But as the years went on, Emma faded into obscurity. Soon, only the most devout radicals remembered her name. That was until the 1970s, when anarchism had a resurgence in America, and Emma became an inspiration to a new generation of activists. In particular, conscientious objectors to the Vietnam War looked to her life for guidance and to her speeches as touchstones. Today, Emma is thought of much more fondly than she was during her lifetime. While she still has her critics, most people today view her as one of the great activists of her time, a pioneer of both women's rights and societal change for all. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Emma Goldman, amongst the many sources we used, we found Emma Goldman, Revolution as a Way of Life by Vivian Gornick, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joel Callan, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Bad omens, good fortune, pure luck? Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions. New episodes air weekly, every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.